Uh, Father, and what we're talking about today uh, is very deep and sweet. It has taken um, many years, many different churchmen, theologians, to uh, rightly understand what you have made clear in your word. And it's because it is so sweet and profound. But also, Father, it, it is simple for a child and meant for our children. Uh, so, Father, today as we, we walk through it, would you just help us to love Jesus, to consider him worthy, and to have our affections just wrapped up in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so chapter 8, the Westminster Confession. Um, I was thinking this week, one of the most scary and sweet questions I think anyone could ask me if I'm just out and about and some stranger comes up to me, they would ask the question, tell me about Jesus. And that was it. That was the the blanket question. I think inwardly I'd feel two things. I would smile and be so happy and be like, how much how much time do you have? This, this is going to be sweet. And then the other part of me would be very nervous. Of like, well, you can't understand this without this, and then this, and this, and this. That connects to this, which connects to that. Oh, how much time do you have? <laughs> and it's both, isn't it? I mean, it's such a sweet, profound question. Just tell me about Jesus. And we see this in chapter 8. Um, chapter 7 really is the, the mind of Reformed theology. It's how we think covenantally. They're, they're expressing how we think through Scripture and how we relate to God. But chapter 8 is the heart. It is the jewel. It's Christ himself. And that's why, if you uh, look through history, you can have different Reformed men in different denominations. They may disagree with different chapters, but not this one. If you had Charles Spurgeon here, a Calvinistic Baptist, he'd say, that's the heart. You had John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, Calvinistic Baptist, there's the heart. Richard Sibbs, who we would probably call a Reformed Anglican, that's the heart right there, chapter 8. And so we're talking about that today. And um, it took a lot of history to get to these words. This is a very (laughs) dense chapter. We have the Chalcedonian definition in here. We have the Ordo Salutis within here, how we logically understand salvation, We have all this history of theology. I think we forget that we are clay pots looking to look into the mystery of the profound and rightly articulate it. On the chapter on Scripture, it says that we are receivers of truth. We don't conceive of truth. We don't try to make up and form truth. We're not those who create reality. We're not those who create what is true. We're pots. We're creatures. We receive. And so it has taken a lot of church history to get here. Um, but what I think is sweet is when we read through this, a lot of us just kind of know it. I think that's a wonderful thing, a wonderful time to live within the covenant of grace, that a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about, how Christ has two natures, that took time to rightly articulate. When we talk about the ordo salutis, that took time. When we talk about the prophet, priest, and king, these are things that didn't just all of a sudden happen. Can you hear me now? Is that better? Okay, cool. There we go. I'll fix that for you. Good, good, good. I'm kind of naturally soft-spoken. So when we walk through this, 
I want to say I'm not going to be able to cover everything sufficiently. If I skip over a part, I'm not trying to avoid it. There is just a lot. And what I want to do today is connect it to chapter 7, when we talk about the covenant of works and how Adam was the head of that covenant. Now we're talking about the covenant of grace and the head of that covenant, the mediator of that covenant, the sum and substance of that covenant, Jesus. And I want to read for you Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and then we're going to walk through the chapter. So in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we have, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he starts talking about who Jesus is. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we bro- I broke up chapter 8 in four sections. Now there's actually eight stanzas, all very dense, but I'm going to break them up into four different sections. And what I want us to see is the connection between the covenant of works in Adam and how Christ is receiving the condemnation of that covenant, fulfilling the demands of that covenant so he can impute it by grace to us. So in the first part, we have the triune harmony. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So before we get into the tangibles of how Christ mediates the covenant, and before we even talk about what kind of mediator we need, the confession says, let's first slow down and look at this from the point of eternity. They're getting ahead of certain thoughts that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were at odds. You know, the Father is the mean one, and Jesus just appeases the mean one. And he says, no, 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 we're going to start back here and talk about in eternity, there was a triune agreement to have Jesus as the mediator and to have a covenant of grace and to have 
a bride. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. He, before eternity, had an office set before him. Chosen and ordained. The father looks at his son and says, I want to give you a bride. The son looks at the father. I want to present to you a glorious bride. And the spirit says, I want to come to these people and walk with them until this is consummated. So Christ is not the mediator post the covenant of works in the sense of, ooh, that failed, that didn't work. Ooh, let's twiddle our thumbs, let's pace back and forth. Now that Adam failed, what are we going to do? Ooh, Jesus, ah! (laughs) No, it's not that there was a second way in the sense of plan B. What they want us to see is that before eternity, this was always what would be. He always wanted to give his bride a mediator. He wanted his people to have Jesus to fulfill the covenant of grace. And he would be the mediator between God and man. And by mediator, he's talking about someone who goes between two parties. And again, Jesus is not doing this outside of the will of the Father. This was a a great one-willed, one-mind of the triune God of what they desired. That we would have someone go on our behalf before God. And prophet, priest, and king. And in here, what we have is an implied understanding of something we need. So even before eternity, we... God knew what his people would need. They would need a prophet. They would need a priest. They would need a king. Sin and the fall was already in the mind of God. Sin is not uprooting and changing and thwarting the ultimate purpose of our sovereign God. But what we need is a prophet. A prophet is one who brings the word of God to his people to lay it bare so it would work in us to communicate truth. And the reason we need this is because in the fall, our minds and hearts are under condemnation. We naturally don't receive the things of God. We naturally look out over all creation and suppress truth. I mean, we see that today very easily. People are just suppressing what is naturally laid before them. And so we need a prophet. We need a priest. Someone who would actually please God on our behalf who would make sacrifices so God would look upon us with pleasure, that we naturally don't do this. 
in the fall, in our head of Adam, we don't please God in our natural state. Our best efforts are rags. Their best efforts are rags. You're welcome. And we need a king. We need a king. We need a ruler, a defender, one who would lead us in paths of righteousness. Lydia and I just went to uh, Christmas Town in Bush Gardens. I was blown away by how many songs were played with Christ in them. I had a reigning king. And I remember just looking at the people. They, they don't even know they need a king. They, they, don't, they don't even care if you say he is king. Eh, I don't need a king. There's no need for a defender, a ruler to guide. I'm my own king. So these words would just wash over the people. Just didn't care. When in history, we were persecuted for such claims. But what I love about this is before anything was created, before the worlds were founded, God looked at his people in his mind and said, I want them to have this, a king, a prophet, and a priest. And I'm going to ordain my son to be this for them. And he would be the head and savior of the church. And don't forget, in the covenant of works, what was promised? Life. Through personal and perfect obedience. The covenant of grace, what is offered? Life and salvation. Redemption unto life. Redemption is already right here. Before anything began, I want my people to be warmed, insured. They have a redeemer. They don't simply come to me upon their own righteousness, but there would be a foundation of love and affection. They have a savior. And he would be the heir of all things the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people. This is when we start to get those distinctives that are reformed. This document, the confession, is both unifying, but also very distinctive. From all eternity, he was given a people. This is what I meant by the father giving his son a bride. Does that, does that come into your mind throughout your week that you, before the foundations of the world, were a gift to Jesus? You were given to him as a bride that he may make you holy, blameless, spotless, that he may love you, intercede for you. And the Father was pleased to do this. And Christ was pleased to take them as a bride, take you as a bride, and be these things for you. He's pleased to do it. These things require sin. You need a prophet. You need a priest. You need a king. And he was pleased to go, I'll do it. I would love to do this for my people. They would be his, and in time, 
redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. The whole package of salvation is in your Redeemer. Redeemed in Him, called in Him, justified in Him, sanctified in Him, glorified in Him. The full thing. So before we talk about the tangibles of how it works on earth and all that Christ did, the confession says, let's start here and wonder and marvel at the good grace of God. So the next thing they talk about in sections 2, 3, and 7, what type of mediator? So if this is the relationship of the covenant of grace, if we are united to our head, who's all these things on our behalf, what kind of head do we need? What type of mediator? So in the um, uh, Heidelberg Catechism, question 15, that's basically what they're asking. What type of mediator do you then mean? And I'm summarizing, they say, I need, we need a righteous man and one who is truly divine. We're going to get into the two natures of Jesus. And I'm going to read all three sections because it's very dense, but I'm going to try to summarize it for us. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. What that means is his human nature that he put on has all the real and true properties of a human nature. But not a fallen human nature. It is the nature that Adam had in innocency before sin corrupted. It truly was human nature, and Christ took on all the properties that are of a true human without sin and without being under the condemnation. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead, truly divine with all the properties that go with a divine nature and manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God, very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all, all, that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, full of grace and truth, he might thoroughly furnished, be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. 
Then number seven, Christ in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures, both the truly human and the truly divine. In his act of mediation, they were both acting in accordance to that. He was. By each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Big fancy words made simple. There are times we will see Christ operate, and he's doing something either by the divine nature, human nature, he, but we say Christ is operating. We are not able to make that cut as clearly as we want to. And that's why there are debates and discussions over which nature is doing what. The confession says there are things that we can say is of that nature. But what they're really protecting against is this idea that we're going to muddle up and mix these two natures. All types of heresy comes from that. When we try to look into the mystery and we start confusing and mixing these two natures. Or we start saying, well, he, he really was truly divine, but not truly human. Or we say, no, he truly was human, but not truly divine. And we know that this, these heresies flow from these confusions and these, these subtle word changes. But why is it that we really did need a truly human mediator? Why, why do we need a mediator who's truly human? Why, why can't he be just truly divine? Any thoughts? Absolutely. So when Christ comes, he is coming to execute an office. We had just talked about before creation, what was the agreement within the triune harmony, and then now we're asking, what kind of mediator do we need? And what we need, because in the covenant of works, Adam... was unfaithful and received condemnation. He was unfaithful to God, disobeyed God, and received condemnation. And because he was our head, by natural birth, all men are now condemned. So we need a mediator to not simply get us back to a point where now we can obey and fulfill the covenant of works. We don't simply need someone to appease the sin penalty. But Christ goes beyond. He takes what Adam failed and flips it on its head. In the covenant of grace, and this is just, it's so profound that we won't 
fully get it in this time, I think. Christ was faithful unto condemnation. Adam was given the covenant, obey and live. Christ was given the office of mediation by which he was obedient unto death. What is he doing when we look at his life? Why is he baptized? When John sees him coming and they're, they're doing baptism for repentance, for, for people who are contrite over their sin, and he sees Jesus coming and says, Behold, the one who takes sin away. And Jesus says, I need to be baptized. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're not a sinner. You, you don't need repentance. No, but I'm here to fulfill the law. I want to be identified with my bride. I want to be identified with their death. I want to receive a baptism into what they deserve so they could receive a baptism into my death. When he's tempted, you know, sometimes we think he's just floating around in his divine nature. But he was probably hunched over, weak in a desert, lonely, no beauty, just death all around him, hungry, hurting. Why? Why, why, why couldn't he just resist temptation the next day? Because he has to identify with Adam. Adam is in a beautiful garden, fully content, food everywhere, peaceful and wonderful, and fails to resist temptation. So Christ reverses it. I will go where there's death. I will go where there's no food. I will go to the brink of hunger and be tempted like Adam. And he wants to do this. And this is what's amazing. He wants to do this so he can fulfill righteousness and account it to you. So in your account, God looks at you as one who was hungry unto death, alone, isolated in a desert, and did resist temptation. You were there. He mediates that to you, that account of resisting temptation. Why, why is he washing disciples' feet? Why, why is he washing the feet of Judas? Why, why is it that on his life, the more and more he's getting closer to the cross, he's actually becoming more and more humiliated? This is humbling continues to get worse. And yet his obedience seems to shine forth all the more. Why is it that on the cross, his body has to be broken and bruised? to the point where he's not even recognized as human. Because he wants to identify with those, me, who in my disobedience, I, I mar the image of God. Why, why is it that he doesn't commend his spirit to the Father until after the full weight of the curse is brought down? The full weight 
of forsakenness is brought to him, he cries out, my God, my God, why? Why are you forsaking me? It is finished. And then entrusts himself to God. Because he wants to fulfill the law even to the point of being forsaken. That even after receiving the curse, he is showing forth an obedient, faithful son, even after receiving the weight. Why? So he could impute that real, tangible, human obedience to you. So that even when you want to forsake God because you've stubbed your toe, you are accounted. You're accounted as one who really did stay obedient, who really was faithful even to the end. And that's accounted to you before any obedience is brought forth. That's the mediator we need. We need a real human to really, truly obey perfectly. True, personal, perfect obedience. And we need a real human to be accursed. So that now, there's no more wrath for me. There's no more condemnation. A true human really did it. And a true human faithfulness that's tangible, real, and time is accounted but we also need a divine mediator who has the power over death, power over sin, who can be, who can bear the weight of eternal damnation and rise again, who can impute such a faithfulness to his loving bride who he adorns. And that's why in history, heresy wants to mess with that. That's why they want to mess with it. If they make him not really man, then what logically follows is there's still something you need to do to justify yourself. If, if he's not really man, there's some kind of man obedience that hasn't fully been made yet that you need to work to become justified. Or there's some kind of wrath you still need to appease. Right? If he's not really God, then the uh, power of death is still reigning. There's something you need to appease. Once you tweak it just a little, the logical flow comes down to mess everything up. Or if you muddle it and you say, well, his human nature was influenced by the divine, then it's no longer real human obedience. He didn't actually do it. And so we talk about, I think a lot of times I see Christians, we talk about, yes, truly God, truly man, but then we stop. And we, we, don't, we don't flush out why that's so important. Or if we hear someone talk about, well, he wasn't really truly man, we go, no, he was. Can't tell you why that's important. But I hope that feeds our souls. These truths are worth fighting over, but they're also very worth meditating on. I mean, it's, it's a mystery. When Christ was born as an infant, 
he was dependent on his mom. He needed his mom to feed him and change him and clothe him. He was really human, but that's God Almighty, dependent on no one. So what do you do with that? It's a profound wonder. If you ask the question, did he have to learn to walk? I would say yes, truly man. But it's not like in his mind, the truly divine. He's like, what's walking? I don't know what walking is. This is a mystery. Truly God, truly man, for his bride, pleased to put on a human nature that he will bear for eternity. When you see him in glory, he will forever have human nature. Hands with holes. When you give him a hug, you're going to feel a side. Forever. For his bride. So you may know the sweet love that he has for you as your mediator. Then, what kind of mediation? If that's the type of mediator, how does he do this? Number four, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he may discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it. He endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified, died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal Spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Is a I don't want to say it. it. It's always a sad thing to me when I'm talking to someone who wishes to not see the atonement as real. Um, I had a roommate who would see the atonement as Christ purchased the uh, opportunity for you to come. And I know there's a there's a, a tension there with some people who don't want to say the atonement truly and only was for the elect. Um, but I'm, I'm becoming more and more okay with that tension because I think there's some beauty there that we really lose. In here, there's a distinctive within Reformed theology that before the foundations of the earth, Christ was given a bride, a number set in eternity. And when Christ came down to earth, he wanted to undertake 
this office with a people in mind. All those analogies we just talked about, I want you to see that in those analogies, you were present in his mind. He was not fulfilling an office that was just a blank check. And then he looks and, oh, you happened to make it. He was doing it with the names of his elect on his heart. When he came in bodily form, he came to fulfill an office to make intercessions. There's not a cut of distinction where we try to separate uh, the incarnation, we separate the atonement, we separate intercessions and redemption and the call and justification. It's unified under one link. Why is it he can actually intercede for you, you personally? Because he lived for you personally. He died for you personally. In heaven, at the right hand of God, why is it God receives his intercessions? Why does the Father count the interceding of Christ worthy? If it was just a blanketness of, you know what, I'm going to make an offer and then they can come in and out as they please. If it was a, a distinction where Christ wanted these people, but God wanted these people, and the Holy Spirit wanted these people, they're at odds. But one of the sweetest passages is that God cannot deny himself. His interceding work is at the, the, Christi, the, the fullness, I try to use a big word, I, don't, I can't say it well, at the end of his labor. And so when he intercedes for you, it's one who fulfilled the law. It's one who took your sin. It's a personal, husbandly intercession. So when he, which he may discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it in the way Adam was told to have perfect and personal obedience and failed. Christ was said, perfect and personal obedience for my seed. And he endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and sufferings in his body. Shame had to be placed on him. And what is so great is he willingly took shame so he may communicate to you that there is no more shame. Torment had to be placed on him so he may come to you and say there will be no more torment for you. And though he remained under the power of death, he saw no corruption. On the third day, he arose from the dead, conquering death, holding in his hand glorification for those for whom he lived and died and makes intercessions. It is a package deal bound up in our head, our mediator. 
And so by his perfect obedience and sacrifice, through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, he fully satisfied the justice of his father, both the just fulfillment of the law and the just penalty of disobeying the law, both satisfied. And purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom were given to him. So how is this applied? If he is our mediator and it's all bound up in him, how is this inheritance actually applied to a creature of dust, a clay pot, a sinner? It says, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought, I mean, like in time, codified, it was wrought at the cross by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages, successfully from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices, wherein he was revealed and signified to the seed of the woman, to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same forever. Amen. And now we get back to what we talked about yesterday in chapter 7, how in the covenant of grace, even after the fall, starting with Adam, Christ was the head of the covenant, starting with Adam. They were wrapped in the clothes of the animal that was slain. The promise of Christ to come was proclaimed and the benefits of Christ were already being given. He doesn't make a proclamation and withhold benefits. He proclaims the surety of what really is going to happen in time and is executing the office then and there though they had different administrations. And this is what it says with different promises, types, and sacrifices. It was being communicated, but truly taking root in the lives of his elect. The virtue, efficacy, and benefits have always been for the people of God under the covenant of grace. And then finally, to all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his, uh, his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. 
one of the beauties of Reformed theology, when I was coming out of a more Arminian understanding into a Reformed understanding, I was young and aggressive, mentally grasping it, but it had not yet grasped my heart. Reformed doctrine of the effectual work of Christ is warm and beautiful. I mean, just look at the words. There's a certainty in this. If your husband takes your shame, you don't think he's going to give you his robes of righteousness? You think he's going to bear your marks and not give you the wonderful, righteous inheritance that is his? He certainly and effectually applies it to those whom before the foundations were given to him as a bride. He makes intercessions for them. Do you realize your righteous standing is already in heaven waiting for you? Who bared your penalty? You don't think he's going to intercede for you? You don't think he's going to be your advocate? When you fall into temptation, you don't think he's going to stand there to guard your heart, direct your heart, to bring forth? You don't think he will see the reward of the travailing of his soul? Oh, he will. He will. And this is why he reveals unto his elect by the word the mysteries of salvation. Why do you When you look at scriptures and you think about the cross, you don't see it as folly and a stumbling block. Does that not warm you? You have a mediator who's given you eyes to see. He effectually persuading them by the Spirit to believe and obey. Any obedience you had last week was a gift by the Holy Spirit working in you. Any understanding when you sit in your car and you're, you're pondering the wonders of Christ and you, you just have a, like a hug of warmth of why? Why me? Why would you consider this man? Is that not a substance of the assurance of your faith? Of your husband who died for you? Making it come true in you? governing their hearts by the word of his spirit. When you consider your heart and how wayward and deceptive it is, is it not reassuring that the sovereign king is your king? That the king almighty who is sovereign actually resisted temptation for you, intercedes for you from all eternity, had you in his heart, and he is the king who rules your heart? Even if this past week it was littered with sin, can you not say with a contrite heart, but I have a king who governs my heart and my sin will not thwart his purposes. And he overcomes all their enemies. We have a mediator who is sovereign, who is lowly and gentle. And it is a surety that if you are in him, 
the whole package of salvation has already been accomplished. And he is working and willing in you to believe and obey. If you want to know the heart of Reformed theology, it's the same heart of Scripture, Christ our Lord, who did it and is bringing it to completion today. In 20, almost 2023, we're just a people who've been brought into the same covenant that has been there since Adam and Eve received it. We're just a part of this long line of the beautiful bride. And at the end, we will stand together with the full number of the elect and sing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Let me pray, and then we have some time for some questions. Uh, Father, we did our best to mine some mysteries. We, we confess we are, we are but dust, and you have revealed sweet things to us that are also heavy, that we want to revere. And for all of us this upcoming week, Father, help us to consider Jesus. In all our ways and of our life, may we truly live as we have a loving prophet who really does communicate and exhibit and confer and work in us the truths that are sweet and for our salvation. May we live as we have a priest that today when we go into worship, none of it would be acceptable without a priest who has already done the work, who is truly fully acceptable to you. And that we have a king who really does rule us. He rules our minds, our hearts, our wills, our lives, how we should live in all ways. But this is a lowly king who was glad to be shamed so he could wrap us up in his royal robes so that we may obey and live a life worthy of him. May we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.